Hey everyone, we just launched a new show called Request for Startups. In the first season, we've got a rotating lineup of tech founders and investors joining me to share their requests for startups they want to exist in the world, and also share their stories of navigating the idea maze in different sectors so founders don't have to reinvent the wheel anymore. The first episode is out now. We cover better dating apps, references as a service, and we work for productivity. Listen first, then build. Video episodes of the show are on our Substack. You'll find a link in the description. People weren't joining my course, which was a horrible way to think about running a product. But then what happened was after the second cohort, and this sort of leads into so much of building a company is to stick around long enough where you get these really positive, asymmetric moments of serendipity where magical things happen and the company fundamentally changes. Welcome to Media Empires, where we sit down with the most intellectual media creators right now to learn exactly how they built their empires. Our aim is to extract the secrets of top-tier podcasters, newsletter authors, and media creators who are breaking the old rules for media success. Whether you're looking to start your own empire or simply curious about the nuts and bolts behind media businesses, you'll find valuable insights and tactics in each episode. Grab your headphones. Let's dive in. Riverside is a presenting sponsor of Media Empires. It's an essential part of our tech stack. Riverside makes scaling a media business possible for us and so many podcasters and creators. It's our online recording studio, not just for the show, but across the entire podcast network. Riverside lets us record interviews with the best guests from wherever they are in the world. Our team can also cut short form clips directly from Riverside. Because as any listener of this show knows, you create once and then publish everywhere. Sign up for Riverside.fm today by following the link in the description box and use our code MEDIAEMPIRES to get a 20% discount. Today, our guest is Dave Perel, founder of Rite of Passage. David has a unique lens on building his writing empire. David has catalyzed many other creators at the intersection of media and tech, including Packy McCormick, who took Rite of Passage. In this episode, we talk about how David thinks about his writing empire, how he evaluates opportunities, and how Walt Disney serves as his enduring inspiration. David, welcome to Media Empires. Stoked to have you on here. Thanks, man. I've spent so much time listening to your voice that... <laughs> It's always it's always weird being on your you know being on your podcast. It's like weird, but in a very cool way. You yes. Know? Well, well, right back at you, and also reading your your writing. And I just read your most recent annual review, uh, which first off is just an amazing exercise. You write this long annual review of the things you learn, uh, your goals, reflecting on them, what you aim to do the next year, and it, it's really thorough and it gives a great insight into who you are, what you care about, and and I bet it, it's a great recruiting tool as well in terms of. People want to join your company. People want to just be a part of the of the world that you, you that you created. Where did you get the inspiration to to create annual annual review? Yeah, honestly, it was from Tiago Forte, who I started Rite of Passage with, and he ran still runs a course called Building a Second Brain. But when we would run our courses, what would happen was there would always be this lull time right around the new year where we wouldn't launch our courses till early spring, and so we said, hey, let's make. A little extra money, but also do something that's incredibly meaningful. And so I taught an annual review, which then was a really good forcing function to do an annual review. And every year, it just gets more and more intense and just takes over my life more and more. But it's a really good, really good ritual. Yeah, I love that. Um, and, and one thing that's perfect timing is that in your review, you talked about how you're balancing the craft of writing with the business of, of what you're doing, which is teaching other people how to write. 
And because you're so focused on business, you're going to be writing about about the craft of building a business. Uh, and so that's that's what we're going to talk about in, in, the, in this episode. To give people a bit of lay of the land, why don't we kind of talk about the different phases of, of Rite of Passage? Like if, if you were to talk about in the different waves, where you've been to, to where you are now, and then we'll talk about where you're going. Uh, wh- why don't you uh, give us the evolution? Someone asked me this morning, how old is Rite of Passage? And there's a few ways to answer that question. I would say the first is, or how long have you been working on it? The first is I've been working on it for 20 years in that I really didn't like school. I thought school was like a prison and I was a very hyperactive young boy. And it was funny because I would go home and almost every night it was like, the clock strikes midnight, David's going to throw a temper tantrum. And I didn't really understand why until I left school. And then I just worked back and I said, hold on here. I spent 16 years in school where basically for five days a week, I woke up way earlier than is healthy for children. Then I sat down in classrooms in these chairs and had a 15-minute recess at 10 a.m. and a 20-minute recess for lunch. And then I was in chairs again. And then if I was lucky, I would get to go to sports and recreation. But even sports and recreation had the same sort of coercion and all these rules around them. It wasn't a scrimmage. It was practice in this way, do drills in this way. It still had this very regimented, militaristic ideology. And then I would go home and I'd have to sit down and do dinner with the family. So that's more sitting down. And then I'd have to do homework, which is more sitting down. And then I'd wake up the next morning and I'd do it all over again. And at a very young age, I realized, I think through my actions, I actually didn't realize this intellectually. I think my actions were indicating that something was deeply wrong. Anyway, fast forward to I graduate from university and I go work at an advertising agency in New York, get laid off after seven months, and then spent about a year or two wandering and thinking about what am I going to do. And I got really obsessed with this idea that people are companies. And when I was working at the advertising agency, the core thesis of the agency was people are media companies. So I was selling two brands based on that idea. And then what happened was I said, hey, let's just chop off media. Let's just say people are companies. And now what are the implications of that? And that idea was really interesting to me. So I started off, I made some YouTube videos, made 114 YouTube videos in 114 days. And I said, hold on here. I actually don't want to make YouTube videos The problem is all the time that I'm spending editing, I actually think I should be reading and writing and learning. And I realized that writing was a better way to learn than making videos, started building an audience. And lo and behold, people started to reach out to me and say, hey, can you help me do the same thing? And at the beginning, those those people were in the finance industry. Yeah. Okay. So they used, and that, that's what leads up to, to Rite of Passage. So you have a few cohorts, they start to really take off. You're, you're a visionary. So you're always thinking, hey, what, what could this lead to? Why don't you take us as, as you're thinking about like that evolution from, hey, here's an early product. I've got some product market fit to what could this become? Yeah, totally. So basically what happened was I remember I was working. So I, I started off with people in the finance industry. I was a consultant and I did not like consulting. It felt like 
very repetitive and I wasn't particularly good at it. And I also realized that courses had the scale that consulting didn't have. And because I'd taken Tiago's Building a Second Brain course, I was like, oh my goodness, this is it. I can just do that for writing. And so we started to do it. And the first cohort I launched, I probably had somewhere between eight and 14,000 newsletter subscribers. Launched the cohort, and we did about 100 grand in revenue. And then I did cohort two, 51 grand in revenue. And so I basically, that's about how much it cost me to run everything. And I remember thinking, and this is a really important thing to know, because sometimes you just get these really bad ideas in your head. I remember thinking that I'd exhausted the total market for people (laughs) who were interested in online writing. And that's why people weren't joining my course, which was a horrible way to think about running a product. But then what happened was after the second cohort, and this sort of leads into so much of building a company is to stick around long enough where you get these really positive, asymmetric moments of serendipity where magical things happen and the company fundamentally changes. And what happened was Will Mannon, who was a student, reached out to me after the second cohort and he had eight bullet points and I was walking around my apartment in Brooklyn and I just said to him, hey, rather than me implementing those bullet points, why don't you implement those bullet points? So I brought him on, paid him $750 a week. And at the time he was working a full-time job. And I remember he would go to conferences. He would be there all day as a sales rep. And then he would come home at night and he would just slave away helping me. You've just never seen a guy work so hard. So I brought him on full-time for cohort three. And I remember very distinctly, it was the third cohort at the end, being in an apartment in Mexico City, teaching that cohort. And at the end, people go around talking about how the course had changed their lives. And something about hearing these stories, the specificity, the change, the transformation in five weeks, I just broke down. I just broke down in tears. It was so moving. And I just point back to that moment and I say, that was one of those moments that I felt like we had a product that worked. And then there was another moment when after the fifth cohort, which happened during COVID, there was something really special about that one too, where our students teamed up to make a 35-minute appreciation video at the end. And both of those moments made me realize that, hey, we have a really good product and we can get into this. The problem was running these courses was so unbelievably hard that we had to make a change. Take us further. When you realized you had to make a change, what did that change look like? One thing that's really hard to know is how do you want to trade ambition versus lifestyle, long-term success, short-term success? Do you want to be somebody who's just skipping every single day, but then you're sort of giving up a certain kind of long-term success? Or do you want to think over a long time horizon and say, I'm actually willing to sacrifice some of my days now and turn to trying to build something that's has real impact and a deeper state of fulfillment. And basically, I started off really trying to build a lifestyle brand. And I think that the thing that I really struggled with was I'm not detail-oriented. I'm not 
a finisher. So I'm very good at starting things. I'm very good at setting a vision. I'm good at leading. And I'm not as good at actually dotting my I's, crossing my T's and all that. And so Will, my co-founder, had a lot of the same challenges. And I remember we were in Denver last year and we were talking about a super simple case study on the site. And we were just like, well, who's going to do it? What, are you going to run it? Am I going to run it? Because I'm not running it. You're not going to run it. It turned into, you know, it wasn't a fight, but it was like, had a lot of animosity in that conversation. And I think it really speaks to a lot of the challenges that we had where like our bus factor was so high. If Will had gotten hit by a car or I'd gotten hit by a car, the whole company just would have died. And so one year ago today, the metaphor that I have is it was the whole company was like hanging from a spider web thread where like it just would have taken somebody's index finger to just plop that off and the whole company just would have shattered like glass. It just got really hard to actually run the company. And so we said, hey, let's bring some people on and begin to hire. We were lucky to be very profitable early on. And then that sort of leads into the next thing, which is, I had a series of conversations with some very trusted mentors who just helped me work through this intellectually, who had built successful businesses themselves. And they said, go on, hire a really good chief operating officer. We must have gone through 60 to 80 candidates. And I said, that's what I'm going to do. And we just worked so hard to find that person. But early on, I'd seen a video from Patrick Carlson at Stripe, who said the first 10 hires that you make are so important. And I tried to make sure that those early people were rock solid. I think we did a pretty good job. And once Chris joined our chief operating officer, it became a lot easier because there's just a whole section of the company that was siphoned off and put in his territory. Yeah. The first 10 employees multiply themselves 10, 10 times. 100%. Fascinating. So here's where I want to zoom out. And I want to rewind back to your, you've done a few cohorts. There's this product market fit. You have people coming out of it, like Packy McCormick, who goes on to build his media empire, but not boring. And Anna who goes on to build you know, her empire with, with synthesis and, and just her content empire in general. Um, so, so this thing is clearly working. And the benefit of when things are clearly working is there's a number of different things you could do. I'm sure you were looking at you know, the Harry Steppings or the Pack user and saying, hey, should I raise a fund? I'm sure that that's crossed your, or getting to invest, I'm sure that's crossed your mind. You decided not to do it. You know, there's the, the Lenny path of just like going down, like tripling down as a creator and going across platform. I'm sure you thought of that. You decided not to do it. Walk us through your mind as you were evaluating your options that you eventually didn't pursue, but which ones did you consider and, and why did you end up discarding them? Because a lot of people get in your position and say, hey, I have options now. How should I think about it? That's a great question. And the God honest answer is my focus became diffuse and I had to refocus. I wish that I could sit here and say that I've been very good about focus. I'm actually doing things now to get better at focus. I've actually gotten a lot better at this. So let me start where with where I started and then we'll end up with where I'm going now. So I thought about raising a fund. I thought about Rite of Passage just being my first company and then basically hiring a CEO and then doing another company and basically being a serial entrepreneur. We almost not only launched a high school division last year, we almost launched also a business writing division. So we almost launched two new products at the same time. There have been so many things that I've done in the past that have been a distraction from the core thing. And 
The other thing that's really tricky is how do you think about yourself as a creator and how do you think of yourself as an entrepreneur? And I'm still struggling with this right now, where up until now, Rite of Passage has gotten students when I write basically on Twitter, grow my email list, the email list grows, there's a direct correlation between how much email list grows and how many students join the cohort, and that was my bread and butter. And I moved away from that. I made a very hard decision to basically say, this was my calculus. In these years, I could go be a great CEO and a mediocre writer, but I cannot be a great writer and a mediocre CEO. Like being a CEO is felt much more binary to me. So if I went to go be a great writer, I would be a terrible CEO. And something about that calculus pushed me to go really run this company. Now, the big challenge that we're going through is I am all in on running this company. But now, how do we build a sustainable system with infrastructure so that the company can really generate its own revenue? And honestly, the jury's still out on if we can do that. Is it possible? Yes. Can we do it? Maybe. And we haven't figured that out. But focus is something that I have constantly reminded myself of, and I've still gotten distraction distracted. Now, I've had people inside the company who've come to me and said, hey, we got to tokenize this company. Please, 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 please. Come on. It's the big thing. Yeah. You got to do that. I've said no. I've had people who've come up to me and said, hey, are you going to do NFT writing and all that? I've said no. And so now I've moved much closer to a point where I'm all in. And basically, I'm saying this is my shot and anything that helps write a passage, I'm going to do. And anything that doesn't help write a passage, I'm not going to do. And it's just as simple as that. But I don't want to paint this story as I've always been focused because I've actually gotten distracted quite a bit and had to work through that. I've been there myself. <laughs> so yeah, it's very tempting. Just to push uh, even further, and, and maybe the person who's best personified this is, is actually Tim Ferriss, who has built, you know, has been a massive successful creator and hasn't really focused on building institution versus just his content streams and the things they enable like investing or the NFT projects or his other content projects. Did you not go that path because you just thought you could have a bigger impact building an institution or you just didn't feel like it fit your interests? Uh, why, why not go that, that path? I really enjoy leading a team. Like I really enjoy it. And I want to have the ability to write insofar as I can do other things. Like Rite of Passage is not like a creative writing course or an MFA where the goal of those is to learn how to write as an end in itself. Rite of Passage is about learning to write more as a means to an end. Now, we make three commitments to students. The first one is publish quality ideas. And then it's find your people, 2x your potential. But actually, that is the progression. What we say is publish quality ideas so that you can find your people. Now, you're making these serendipitous connections. And then you're 2xing your potential, finding work that's twice as meaningful, being twice as creative, or doubling your income. But that progression, the way that the course is structured, is also the way that my value system works of what I want to get for my career. I didn't read a lot when I was a kid. I look up to writers, but it's the writers who I look up to generally did something else 
with what they've done. People like Paul Graham, the guy built an unbelievable institution that produced all these billion dollar companies. As he did it, he wrote incredible essays that made building startups legible in a way that they weren't before. Then because those essays were so good, YC could embody a lot of the principles, focus on customers, do things that don't scale. All these things that we've heard a million times, not because they're like divinely ordained, written like the tablets that Moses received from God at Mount Sinai, but because Paul Graham invented those things, codified them into writing, spent time at YC, then got all of these people to align with those principles, prove that they worked then created an education company that now if you go on YC and you want to look up startup growth, it's all aligned around Paul Graham's principles, but they don't directly teach what Paul Graham is saying. And now he doesn't work at YC anymore. He's still very involved. But that progression to me is just hats off to you, man. And that is the kind of writing that I'm interested in. Yeah. No, he's built something that transcended himself. Yeah. You know, it might exist a hundred years from now. It's, It's truly epic. I want, to, I want to rewind to a few years ago when you came out with your Disney diagram of the future of Rite of Passage. I'm curious, when you look at that diagram or what you put out a few years ago and you compare it to where you are now, what's changed or what's evolved in that vision and how have you chosen to prioritize what's best for Rite of Passage? Yeah. So there's really been three evolutions of that. So there's the one you're talking about that I think was stage two. I actually wrote my first one during spring break, my senior year of college in Panama City. And it was uh, one night, I just drew it out. And I said, okay, I think I know what I want to do with my life. Back then, I actually thought I was going to go into sports and golf instruction. And my original vision was golf is being changed by technology, I can digitize golf instruction. And that'll be so transformative. And I ended up moving away from that once I started to work in media and began to see that. What I think I did get right at the very beginning was thinking in terms of ecosystems of here's how Twitter plugs in with email, which plugs in with podcasting, which I did really intensely for many years. What I missed was how good of an engine monetizing courses are for individual creators. I also missed just how valuable email was and how everything in my career would point to email, email, email. If I can have people on an email list who have high willingness to pay, there's a bunch of them and they're really interested in taking Rite of Passage, we're going to do financially very well. And then I also just didn't quite see the opportunity of online writing at the time. And then I probably, to what we were talking about earlier, didn't quite appreciate the benefits of focus. So I do want to move back out into that eventually of having the flywheel. But I think that for now, what I'm really focused on is how do we come up with really good ideas that we share in public? How do we get people onto our email list? And how then do we get them in the course? And just doing less, doing those things really well, because I guess I also didn't quite appreciate how much audience growth on a platform is a power law and how hard it is. And I actually think this is a bug of the internet, how hard it is to port an audience from one platform to the other. The way the internet should work is you should have some sort of reputational token that is embedded within the core of the internet structure at some protocol, and then you can sort of move across platforms. Now, at the same time, you would lose like a lot of the 
very quick status that you can get on a new platform. So it would probably actually, I don't know, maybe embed platforms more and more. But I guess I didn't realize that, oh, you can't just like build a, an audience on YouTube and then just all of a sudden have all these Twitter followers. It doesn't really work like that. One thing I think you hinted at the, the document and you hint now at your future too is, is um, supporting writers well beyond the course of the program because once they built an audience, they're going to go do other things with that audience. And so equity upside and alignment is, is really powerful. Now with companies, it's much more straightforward. You just invest and it's long-term. Whereas with people, they maybe haven't even started their company yet. And so it's a little bit challenging. I'm curious how you've thought about this idea of, hey, people will build an audience and then they will go on to do incredible things that, you, that your help enabling the audience has helped accelerate. Is there a way for you to get some upside in what they go on to do? Yeah, open question. And I think that your point earlier about, or what you shared on Twitter a few weeks ago about they need to be paired with operators. That's the big thing. You could basically think of three circles that comprise a Venn diagram. The first is who's a creator, who has a vision for a business, and who can operate that business. It's very hard to be all three. I think the best that you can do is have two of those. And so then what I see the opportunity as is plug in the third. I tried to start a summer camp with Ana Fabrega very early on. And now that I'm looking back on, on it, she needed a structure around her to help her grow. And she ended up doing that with Synthesis, which is great. I think that there's going to be so much opportunity for people to start these businesses. And there's always a push and a pull about the intellectual side of these things. I'm trying to figure out different mechanisms to monetize, to basically monetize after somebody leaves the course. So there's a few paths that I could basically take. So one of the big ones that we've been thinking about is, have you seen this account, Cultural Tutor? Uh, yeah, I, I saw through your uh, through your review and, and you helped with their audience. Yeah, so yeah, I found Cultural Tutor five, six weeks into writing, had 100,000 Twitter followers. And I said, you know, because I've swiped and swiped miles of my life, right? And I just saw this account, you know, something about just taste and having spent time. I said, that's it. So I got in touch with him. Turned out I'd had dinner with his best friend in London earlier that year. It's like amazing serendipity. And I said, hey... What does it look like if we just fund you to keep going? And so basically, Rite of Passage has been a patron for what he's doing. But our vision is very aligned in terms of he wants to build a liberal arts school in the future. Maybe we can bring him into Rite of Passage to do certain things. Who knows? But that's sort of at one extreme, sort of like a call option on good things happening. And now he has a, more than a million followers on Twitter and good things will come from that relationship. Another, and I'd be curious to hear if you looked into this at on deck is what we call outplacement. So basically matching students with jobs after they leave the course. And so we've had companies come to us and say, I want to hire writers, X, Y writer. What we'll do is we'll fund scholarships. And then what you got to do is send us X number of qualified candidates for every scholarship that we fund. Great. Happy to do that. And then there's another role where I've had certain executives come to me and say, I would really like a chief evangelist for my company, like Ana Fabrega. So already working with a few companies to, to do that. And just trying to figure out what the right mechanism here, what the right mechanism is here. Yeah, it's fascinating. 
The other thing that you could have done is kind of said, hey, I have one of the earliest cohort-based course successes. Uh, I'm going to help other people do that, or I'm going to create, you know, before Maven, you could have created the Maven or something. I'm, I'm curious, is, is that something that you explored and slash what have your thoughts been on cohort-based courses? Because we've had our own experiences at, you, through the highs and lows. I, I wonder how much of it was artificially inflated in COVID for, for, for us, at least within tech. You've had tremendous, you know, continued success with it. But you know, what are your reactions to this? Okay, I have a few a few points. So I'm just going to zoom out over time. So the first is, yes, I think that CBCs were very inflated during COVID. There's no secret about that. I think cohort-based courses are interesting because I'm thinking like, what is going to be true about the world 10 years from now that isn't true now? And it's just obvious to me that the number of people who are learning on the internet and the quality of those experiences is going to go up so much. I want to be aligned with those vectors of technology. And then I also just really believe in education. And I also look at the education system and I say, things are deeply broken here. This isn't news to you, but the number, the amount of money that we're paying per student every year is going way up. The quality of outcomes is flat or sometimes down. ACT scores have basically fallen lowest since 2013. You look at the quality of K through 12 schools, so low. We have a high school program. And what I'm really interested in is how do we both improve education, but then how do we think about the business model of education? YC is an education company that doesn't make money directly from education. And so with high schoolers, I could totally see that all of a sudden there's a future where who knows? Maybe we're getting paid by universities to have first access to our high school, our high school program. We already have some stellar high schoolers, even though our first program didn't have that many people, like the average quality of high schooler, super high. Same with Rite of Passage. Maybe like we were talking about, companies want to hire people. Maybe there's an investment platform. Who knows? But see, the thing is, I want to focus on the things that I can control. And what I can control is how can I get an incredibly high average bar of students? How then can I turn them into amazing writers who know how to use the internet and publish quality ideas, teach them how to find their people so that then we can 2x their potential? Yeah, I love that. It's your your version of Jeff Bezos, uh, you know, what's not going to change in 10 years? A thousand uh, percent. That's actually the exact inspiration. It's funny. I, I, I got off a call right before this and I was, you know, we're talking through a product strategy thing. And one thing that I've really come to appreciate is the virtues of simplicity. And like knowing where you're going to be tied down, like it helps to be tied down. It also helps to have optionality and you don't want to tie yourself down prematurely. There's a a quote that I really like that premature optimization is the root of all evil. I (laughs) love that quote. And at the same time, once you place a stake in the ground, things happen and you orbit around that. And there's such an art to placing as few stakes in the ground as possible, but they're the most important ones, tying yourself down there, giving yourself space in other places. And that's a lot of the product strategy that I do, a lot of the thinking that I do. And then when I work with my executive team, they actually fill in the blanks and 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 sort of color in the details. I also love the phrase you mentioned, you want to be aligned with the vectors of technology. It's such a great phrase. Who doesn't want to align with the vectors of technology? Um, no, that 
that is it's very inspiring. You know, I give you a lot of credit for focusing. You, you could have gone all in on CBCs and done CBCs for entrepreneurship and built a platform around. Like, there's so many different things that you could have done that it's it's admirable that you you've really said, hey, instead of doing that, if there's something new, we're going to be the best in the world at, at, at this, and we're going to like stick to what I, David, have so much founder market fit around and so much passion around. Um, and and that's why I think or p- part of the reason why. I think your business has been so durable, uh, where, where others were uh, maybe not as durable. Thank you. What, one thing you mentioned earlier, we were talking about the Disney diagram. Disney has been very inspiring to you uh, for, for, for a while now. Uh, Walt Disney, that is. Um, why don't you, in the business of Bill, why don't you talk about maybe what's, uh, what's not obvious or what's misunderstood and how he is so inspiring to you? I could literally answer that in a thousand ways. So let me give you one of them. I think that Disney has a really interesting mix of being a conservative and a visionary. And I think that is a fascinating blend that we generally see as being opposites. On one hand, Disney is pulling from these archetypes, these foundational stories. So Walt grows up in Chicago, and he moves to Marceline when he's a fairly young kid, Marceline, Missouri. And there's a big train in town. It's sort of this classic American town and only lives there for a few years. But he had a very sort of oppressive, hard-hitting father who was very religious. And he clearly blossomed when he was in Marceline. And I think a lot of founders, a lot of people who do great things with their life, as Josh Wolf says, chips on shoulders, put chips in pockets. And his chip was trying to recreate that childhood, both the one that he had and the one that somehow he imagined in trying to live that childhood. And a lot of what he does in his career is actually just trying to retrieve things from the past. He ends up building a train in his backyard in the early 50s and everyone's like, dude, what are you doing? Like Disney, Walt Disney, famous for Snow White and Fantasia and Pinocchio, literally just sort of like Drops out after the war is like, nah, I'm good. You know, I know I have the studio. I'm just going to build little toy models. And that's what he does. And what I think is fun is he has a model train from 1890. I think it's one eighth scale train. And he literally buys a house in Bel Air so that he can ride around on the train just for fun. And something about that then leads him to the thing that he was visionary about, which is Disneyland. And so before Disneyland gets started, he had been to Coney Island, he had gone to some of the World's Fairs, he had traveled to Europe, and there was a bench that he would sit at at Griffith Park in Los Angeles with his kids. And he would sit there all day and he'd sort of tap his feet like like a dad. And he's like, why don't they make parks that, that parents like as much as kids? And one day he goes to Knott's, Knott's Berry Farm, which is in present-day Anaheim. And at the time, amusement parks were sort of trashy, and they actually didn't call them guests. That was a Disney innovation. They called them marks. And so they saw these people as these regimented numbers, no differentiation among them. Disney says, I'm going to go create a park 
that is different, a park that parents can enjoy as much as their children, a park that is going to be a celebration of imagination and technology and the future. And that sort of gets to the visionary side of him, but also a return to the past. There's an urbanist who said that Disneyland is the greatest piece of urban architecture in America. And I don't think that's necessarily wrong. Besides New York City, I don't know what else wins under 14th Street, New York. And all this to say that when Disney was building Disneyland, people thought he was going to absolutely destroy his reputation. They thought, what are you doing? Parks are dirty and gross. And he's like, but that's why I need to build it because parks are like that. So when I see Disney, I say, that's why I want to build a school because schools are like the old parks and we can build something like Disneyland for riding. But rather than starting with entertainment and working back towards education. We want to start with education and work back towards entertainment. And then you build that. And to get to the theme of media, so the original budget for Disneyland was $2 million, ends up costing $17.5 million. How does he do it? At the time, ABC was the number three television station. So what he does is he calls up ABC and he says, I want you to give me $4 million. I think he gave him 33% of equity in the park. And what you're going to do in exchange for the $4 million, I'm going to make a TV show called The Wonderful World of Disney. And so Disney makes this TV show about the park opening. And then when the park opens, if you watch the original footage from 1955, Ronald Reagan's there. The governor of California's there. All these famous people are there riding the rides. And what Disney so brilliantly did was work with his brother Roy, and Disney was the creative guy. His brother Roy was the hardcore operator in charge of the money, and they used to fight all the time. They went two years without talking to each other. Disney, Walt, would basically say, Roy, I just need money. Get out of here. I need to go be creative. But Disney was just uncompromising in his vision, and he wanted to return so badly to Marceline to basically, through conservatism, that then gave him that visionary ideal. And he was just always at the cutting edge from making cartoon animations to then making Snow White, the f first full length feature film, which, which absolutely crushes to then building Disneyland. And just when people are constantly innovating like that, it's just deeply inspiring to me. Fascinating story about Disney. I imagine if Disney had gotten all in on, on building a school, imagine what kind of universe he would have created, which leads me to a segue on how you're thinking about the, the future of school, particularly as it relates to liberal arts. You've done some experiments there and, and you think a lot about the future of liberal arts and, and you perhaps are, are going to participate in that. Why don't you share some of the, the things that you're doing in, in liberal arts and where you're excited for how the future of liberal arts education will look different than today? Yeah. So I think this is just a giant blind spot in society right now. Like we are so indexed towards practical outcomes in school, which is fine. Got to make money and all that. But we have totally dismissed the great ideas of history and the value of understanding people from Shakespeare to Dostoevsky to these people who have swept society off their feet through time by speaking to something core about human nature. And for whatever reason, we've dismissed that. There's a heuristic from Aaron Haspel, who I'm a big fan of, aphorisms is the word I'm going for, where he says, it's the mark of an intellectual to think that they only know what can be quantified. And I think that our society is so deeply drowning in that assumption, where 
there's uh, stories or society's dreams and they are the subconscious speaking and they are pointing to these ineffable truths about human nature and psychology and what it means to be a human being. And I think that the way that we've dismissed that is tragic. Now, why have we dismissed it? Yes, the rigor of liberal arts has gone way down and it's become politicized. I think that people are right to see a liberal arts degree, the average liberal arts degree, and say, oh, you were just trying to skirt by and not do interesting work. And I think that throughout society, rigor has gone so out of fashion in many places that now it's only math and computer science and physics that people can trust as being rigorous degrees. And I don't think that that's a crazy way to think. What I do think is a tragic outcome, though, is a society that doesn't value the liberal arts, that rejects its own history, and that doesn't look back at the great ideas of, of civilization and to honor that. And so I would really like to create a place where people can learn about the culture that they swim in, where they can learn about the great ideas of history, not in a dogmatic way, but in a way that people can come to appreciate the ideas that have shaped their life. It, it is fascinating that when you think about how do we do this, one thing that's true is that right now the liberal arts is bundled with, you can either go to Stanford and major in English or major in engineering. You look at something like UT Austin, which is trying to unbundle some element of, of the liberal arts portion. I'm inspired by people who are trying to do that. One concern I have is that if you unbundle it from the career development perspective, if people get into Harvard, Stanford or UT Austin, they're probably going to choose Stanford or Harvard because you know they're somewhat taking a career hit. Potentially, maybe that changes over time. But I, I wonder if the fact that it's a bundle allows us to get away with majoring in English or, or something, but still people see Stanford and you know their career opportunities won't be as affected. I'm curious how you think about, you know, the, the sad part is, as you mentioned, like we live in a careerist society, like people go to school to get a good job and and, and, and if you unbundled it, you probably can't charge the, sa the same as a math degree, right? So how do you think about that going forward? Great question. So, so, so here's the thing. First of all, we live in a career society. Fine. We live in a career society. Money matters in capitalism. Great. I'm all about it. Like, cool. Like I'm going to align myself with that. I'm, I, I, I don't try to be like Atlas, you know, Atlas pushing against the gale force winds of society. Society is what it is. And I don't try to battle it. I just try to say, what is society missing? How do I align myself with these winds? and then find alignment and then build something that is necessary. And there's two things that change. The first is you talked about money. We can do this online and we can do it way better online. And online education isn't that expensive. That's the first thing. So once you go from in-person costs to digital costs, things change. Then there's another variable that switches, which is the assumption that you got to do this from 18 to 22. And I used the analogy of the church. So I've... I realized in about, about about five years ago that one of my biggest blind spots was just not understanding religion at all. So I've spent the last half decade really understanding Judaism and Christianity. And when I was living in New York, I became very involved with a church called Redeemer Church and met a woman who had worked there for many years. And she was she said, hey, you got to come to the church and and join these Bible studies. And if you go to a Bible study, the 
the people who are there are of all ages. There'll be a 15 year old, a 35 year old, a 70 year old, an 80 year old, 64 year old. And there are all different walks of life because a church would never turn somebody away because they're outside of the ages from 18 to 22. And then what we effectively do with our PhD programs is say, oh, you can learn between 22 and 30, but you can only do it if you intend to then go teach other people how to learn these ideas for the rest of your career. I looked at the Oxford BPhil graduates list from like 2017 or 2018, 90% of them went to go work in academia. Religions have this right, that you just learn these things throughout your life because relationship with God doesn't end when you're 22. It doesn't end when you're 30. Just like your relationship with the liberal arts. My grandpa died with Shakespeare, a book on his chest open, listening to Mozart in the room. And that's the, he was doing that to the last day of his life. That's what the liberal arts is all about. So if you combine if you combine the liberal arts as a lifetime quest, and then you pair that with the dramatic decreases in cost and the philanthropic nature of this, you can figure it out. You just need a damn good product. And I would love to build that. That's a that's an inspiring vision. And that's a perfect place to, to wrap. Uh, what I love about this, this conversation, what I love about your work is that you're a firsthand example of the idea that you can build an audience uh, and then you can build something bigger than yourself that transcends yourself. Because sometimes audiences, especially we have YouTubers on, like they don't have a super long shelf life always in the same way for certain platforms. And so you want they want to build something that transcends itself. You've done it. You you teach people how to do it. And you're, you're a formidable example of it. So David, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your expertise with us. Thanks, Eric. That's really nice. Riverside is a presenting sponsor of Media Empires. It's an essential part of our tech stack. Riverside makes scaling a media business possible for us and so many podcasters and creators. It's our online recording studio, not just for the show, but across the entire podcast network. Riverside lets us record interviews with the best guests from wherever they are in the world. Our team can also cut short form clips directly from Riverside, because as any listener of this show knows, you create once and then publish everywhere. Sign up for Riverside.fm today by following the link in the description box and use our code MEDIAEMPIRES to get a 20% discount. 